Welcome to Women in the Word. Let's get started. My name is Vanita Jones, and as always, it is my great pleasure to be here today to to continue unpacking this story of David that we found in 1 Samuel. You know, his story, David's story, has taken so many twists and turns. Am I right? I mean, this guy is, something's happening in every chapter to him. And we started way back in 1 Samuel, we saw him, 1 Samuel 16, and we see him being anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. And we've had a front row seat of watching him mature from this young lad who was taking care of his father's sheep all the way to where we are today in chapter 26 and 27. And he's this man now who's caring for 600 men and their households. His life has changed dramatically. And during those years, he's had some major high points. I think you could say that. Remember Goliath? He was a huge hero. They celebrated and we came home. He's had some major, major low points as well, though. I mean, he's been dodging Saul's spear over and over and again over these last seven years. You know, we we often see David, the one who God calls the man after his own heart, seeking God's wisdom and discernment and giving God glory over and over again. And that helped me to understand when I'd get to the end of a chapter going, but wait, Vanita, it's not the end of David's story. Because David was teachable. You know, we also watch David make some pretty big mistakes. It costs people some lives. We've, he doesn't always get it right. And I don't know about you, but that has given me great hope. Because many, many times when I try and fail so many times, I want to glorify God. And I get it wrong. Or I just fall short. But I'm reminded, though, it's not the end of my story. When that happens, there's more to come. In fact, I think some of it's going to bring great joy, and it's going to be amazing. But I have no doubt there will probably be periods of pain where there is immense sadness. We know that's going to happen. But David's story teaches us that to to go through these ups and downs of life, you seek God often, you obey God's commands, and you stay teachable as you walk along this journey here on earth. In fact, we're taught that all throughout Scripture. Look at your verse sheet. It says, 1 Chronicles 16, 11, it says, Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his presence continually. And then we go to 1 Samuel 15, 22. It says, And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. And then Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. So not just David's story here in 1 Samuel, but all of Scripture teaches us Like David, it teaches us how we can become women after God's own heart. That should be our number one goal. You know, roughly 23 years ago, my husband Cameron and I, we were coming out of a very stressful period in our marriage. 
Kaki, our fourth child, had been born, and within the first five months of her life, she had gone through more medical tests, procedures, and surgeries than most of us would go through in an entire lifetime. So by about seven months of age, she uh, was recovering from a major surgery, and we received the blessing from the doctors to say, you can take a trip. So we decided we'd take a road trip to our favorite place on earth. We were going to Colorado. We go there a lot. It's one of our favorite places. So even though we knew we'd have four kids under the age of 10, two of them under the age of two, we thought, we're very hopeful. This is going to be so much fun. (laughs) See, we weren't only very hopeful. We were very naive. Very naive. Here's a brief description of our vacation. One day before we were to leave, our Suburban, which nicely fit all of our children and all of our stuff, it broke down. We were forced to put four children, two babysitters, Cameron and I, and all our stuff into a minivan that our in-laws loaned us. We started out on that 14-hour trip to our destination, and during that time, all but two of us, Cameron and I, had thrown up in the car at least twice. <laughs> twice. It was terrible. We cleaned the car constantly. Over the next nine days, we had about 24 hours, maybe, where we could actually be out, enjoying the scenery, breathing in that crisp mountain air, and then we started packing up to head back to Fort Worth, and that trip was equally as agonizing because we missed a turn, and we added two hours of agony to the trip. The climax of that trip home found us hosing diarrhea off our sweet baby girl in the parking lot of a gas station in Eagle's Nest, New Mexico. Yeah, it was ugly. And to say that Cameron and I were weary by that point, it was a massive understatement. We had gone way past weary. We were disheartened. We were so disappointed. In fact, I can confidently say that what we thought days ago, that determination was gone. We were completely disheartened. And I have to believe that the stress David had been under had started to wear on him by this point. I can't imagine that it wouldn't. Instead of just a few months like we'd been and one terrible trip to Colorado and back, David had been dodging Saul's spear for years. I mean, most believe it was at least seven years that he had been dodging those spears. Now, I want to start, if you haven't already, I want to open your Bibles to... um, to Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 26, and I'm just going to read the first four verses. And you're, when I finish, you're going to be so glad that I didn't ask one of you to read this. Because I spent two hours yesterday listening to YouTube pronunciations of all these words. So we're going to do our best here, okay? It says, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the, ha- on the hill of Hachilah, which is on the east of Jessamine? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hechelah, which is beside the road of the east of Jessamine. But David remained in the wilderness when he saw that Saul had came after him in the wilderness. David sent spies and learned that Saul was indeed had come. So here we are. Chapter 26 opens up. This is familiar territory for all of us. Was for David, he'd been here before, running from Saul, dodging the spear. Now, verse 1 records that the Ziphites, which 
I'm beginning to think might actually be the ancient word for the word busybodies. Because this is not the first time, this is at least the second time that we see them ratting out David to Saul. And he informs them, he says, David is hiding in the wilderness near the hill of Hechela. Now, on a side note, the Ziphites are related to Caleb, and they're from the tribe of Judah. You would think it's the same tribe that David's from. You would think there would be some loyalty there, but absolutely none at all. And of course, Saul does what he does best. He takes 3,000 of his elite warriors to go do a two-man job, and he chases down David into the wilderness again. Now, David, of course, he's a smart warrior, skilled warrior. He surmises this, that he's hot on his heels, and he sends out these uh, spies to kind of look over the situation. They come back and give him some information. Let's pick up in verse 5. I'm going to read through verse 12. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and Joab, his brother, Abishai, the son of Zuriah, who would go down with me into the camp of Saul. And Abishai said, I'll go with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him into the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor even awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Now, before we go on, I wanted to go over this real quickly, and you talked about it probably at your table. There, this is not the same situation that happened a while back. This is a totally different time situation. Um, there was one, there's some commentaries out there, a couple that, that say the other time that David had the chance to kill Saul is actually the same as this one, just recorded at two different times. That's not true, okay? So um, I want you to be the smartest ones at your dinner party when you debunk this theory, because we all talk about David and Saul, I know. Um, but real quick, so there's no confusion, there are three major differences. So if it comes up, you can just say this. It's the location. The first one was, uh, was in a cave in the En Gedi. Now we're at Saul's camp at the Hitchula. Secondly, what Saul was doing at that time, Saul was relieving himself in a cave. This time he's sleeping inside his camp. Thirdly, it's what David took when he got there. He took the first time a piece of the robe. This time he's taken the spear and the water canteen. Now, back to what we read. Though we don't see it recorded anywhere at the beginning of this, most believe that God instructed David to go into Saul's camp. And that's because of what's recorded in verse 12, that it says that God put all 3,000 of these men to sleep. He made them have a deep sleep. Even Abner, Abner would have been directly in charge of protecting King Saul. Even he fell asleep. 
So David and Abishai were able to make their way to the center of this camp. That's where Saul would have been. They would have put Saul in here and all the men would have camped around him to keep him safe. Best protection from animal attack or enemy attack. And then when David found Saul next to Abner, he also saw that spear. It's that same spear, the one that he had been dodging for seven years. And next to that spear was a canteen filled with water. Both of these things, very important to King Saul. And Abishai sees this as the perfect opportunity to get rid of Saul once and for all. He even says, I think God made this opportunity for us. I think we should just do it. But where Abishai attempts to discern God's will in light of his his circumstances... David, on the other hand, he's learned over these seven years, he's learned to interpret God's, his circumstances in light of God's character. That's how he looks at his circumstances, through God's character and God's word. And then, you know, just a short time ago, just one chapter back, David had learned that Nabal's death, through that death, that God's people can trust God with his timing and his justice. He learned not only to trust God to do his work, he had trust God to do it in his own perfect time. And I think he's growing up here. We know this because he tells us to Abishai, he says, as surely as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die. David knew that Saul's life would end exactly at the right time and exactly the right way. It would either by natural causes or it'd be by the judgment of God, but it would not be by David's hand. Let's continue and let's pick up in verse 13. I'm gonna read to verse 20. Then David went over to the other, other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good, and as the lord lives you shall deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your lord." The Lord's anointed, and now see where the king's spear is, and the water, a jar of water that was by his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let the Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is of man, may they be cursed because before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains." So because God had put Saul's and his 3,000 men in this deep sleep, David and Abner or Abishai were able to escape with Saul's spear and his water canteen, and they safely make their way to a hill some distance away, but close enough that they could turn around and talk. And they turn and they yell out and they call for Abner. That's Saul's bodyguard. And they begin, he begins to chastise him for not doing his job. He tells him to go look for Saul's spear. He says, go look for that water canteen. 
I can only imagine the fear that Abner must have felt when he realized that that spear was gone and that he had let someone get close enough to the king to take it and the water canteen, and he had slept right through it. I mean, this very well would have cost him his life because he was failing, he had failed to carry out his duties. You know, David's voice awakens Saul at that point, and immediately Saul recognizes David, and he calls out to him. And he says, David, my son, but David doesn't return with David, my father, to Saul, my father. Because remember, at the end of that last chapter, we learned that David is no longer Saul's son-in-law. Because remember, he gave Michal to someone else, Saul did, and he was nowhere, no longer married to Saul's daughter. So instead, though, what he does is he calls him my lord and my king. Now, that is how he would be showing respect for the king. That's what you were expected to call them. You were giving them their due respect. I can't think how hard, I can't even imagine how hard it would be for David to use that term of respect for a king that had been trying to kill him for seven long years. Not only that, this is the king that David knows his kingdom is short-lived. And that one point, David is going to be taking over his throne I think that my response in that situation would have been so different than David. I'm sure it would have been filled with anger. It would have been filled with bitterness. And it would have had a heavy dose of sarcasm. It wouldn't have sounded anything like David's response. See, David was so secure in his identity because he was secure in God's promises. He was secure in what God had planned for him. He was secure in God's timing of those plans happening. So being able to trust and obey God in his ups and downs, this allowed David to respond to King Saul with respect and honor. Because by doing it, he knew ultimately he was honoring God. And to David, that's all that really mattered. It was much more important to him than his hard feelings towards Saul and making those known. He's no longer that young boy that we saw caring for his dad's sheep. He's maturing into this man of God who's learning to look at his circumstances through the lens of God's character, and that helps him trust God with his plans. And by doing so, he's able to honor God even when it's difficult and even when it doesn't feel good to him. David then proceeds to once again plead his case before Saul and all of Saul's men. And in front of Saul's men, David questions Saul's motives. He said, why are you pursuing me? He asked him, he says, is it something that God has told you to do? Because if it is, then, then by all means, let me make an offering to God so we can put an end to this. And then he says, or is it something all these other guys around you have stirred you up to do? Because if it is, may they be cursed because they're causing you to, to sin against God. You know, I can't imagine at this point what a great deal of emotion there would have been in this speech. I don't think it sounded monotone, sounded deadpan. I think there was a lot of emotion in this. I would imagine he's battle-weary. He's mentally, physically exhausted from being on the run. But not only is he on the run... He's also on the run with 600 men in their households. 
that see, that's the part that's recorded. The part that's not recorded is that those 600 men would have had their whole households, their wives, their children, their extended family, all of their livestock. Some believe there possibly were over 3,000 people with him. So think about this and the stress of not only overseeing all of this, but doing it all the while you fear for your life day and night for seven years. I don't know. I believe that David's plea was an Oscar-worthy performance as he pled with Saul to stop the madness. Let's look at Saul's response to David recorded in verses 20 through 25. One second. We got a little problem here with the mic. <laughs> I can't get it. Yeah. Let's come off the thing here. I'm sorry. Yeah. I could feel it pulling. Okay, thank you. Okay, we're back. Let's start at 20, and I'm going to read, uh, 21, and read to the end. It says, then Saul, then Saul said, I have sinned. Return my son David, for I no more, I will no more harm you, do harm to you, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, here is a sparrow, king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, blessed be you, my son David, you will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place." These are the last recorded words between Saul and David. Between God's two anointed, Saul the current king, David the future king. And as in every other previous conversation between these two men, it plays out the same way. Saul's words are self-focused and they lack acknowledgement of God. David, on the other hand, his are filled with acknowledgement of the Lord and it lacks focus on himself. Saul confessed his sin to David, but he never mentions that his bitter jealousy is actually a sin against God. He says, I've sinned against you, but he doesn't say I've sinned against God. See, true repentance is more than just confessing your your wrongs. True repentance is actually acknowledging you've sinned against God and rooting out the cause of that sin so that you don't do it again. It results in a change in your attitude, and because of that, it results in a change in your actions as well. Saul has had all the opportunities he could possibly have for true repentance, but his pride just keeps getting in the way, and his his desire for, for power and to be the king has gotten in the way of him doing that hard work, and it's caused him to repeat the same sins over and over again sounds a lot like my own life, I'll be honest. 
David, on the other hand, has learned that when he sinned, he sinned against God. He knows that now. More importantly, it's a sin against God, not just against man. And he knew that his circumstances and his response to those circumstances were less about his relationship with Saul and the people around him. More importantly, is about his relationship with God. The end of this chapter kind of makes me sad. I mean, I think at any time, I know our Heavenly Father. How many times has he graciously forgiven me and and helped me turn from what I was doing? Saul could have done that at any time. He may have well, he may have actually kept his kingship. Or at the very least, he might have been just wise counsel for the future king, but he would have been honoring God. But his pride would not allow this to happen. You know, Scripture tells us that when we repent, our Heavenly Father responds with mercy and grace. And I see that true in my life, and I bet you've seen it in yours. Look at Second Chronicles 30 on your verse sheet. It says, For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his, will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. And Proverbs uh, 28, 13, it says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You know, sadly, Saul just couldn't do that. He couldn't get his pride put aside, and he... Because of it, his life has become a disaster. But not David. See, David didn't just survive these hard seven years. David looked at his circumstances through the lens of God's word and God's truth, and he made it determining, was determined to honor God, and it helped him thrive in those circumstances. He was teachable. He learned in those circumstances. And like David, our faith is strengthened when we determine to look at our circumstances through the lens of God's truth. That's when we get proper perspective of all our circumstances. When we do this, we become more concerned about our relationship with God in those circumstances and and less about the circumstances themselves. And that's when we become teachable. Let's begin reading in 1 Samuel 27. I'm just going to read the first four verses. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day at the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul would despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel. I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, and he and 600 men who were with him, to Achish the son of Moak, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives. And then it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, and he no longer sought him. You know, there are two really important things that my husband Cameron and I learned on that trip that I told you about earlier. It took place 23 years ago. First, we learned that um, traveling with four young children should never be called a vacation, It should be called a trip because that's when your expectations have the slightest chance of being met. It's not going to be relaxing. But secondly, we learned this. We learned that the journey from being determined to being disheartened takes about roughly the same amount of time as it takes to hose diarrhea off your daughter at a parking lot in New Mexico. Or at least it did for us. Because I can tell you with complete certainty that after that experience and that parking lot, all our decisions that we made after that were questionable. (laughs) They were not just questionable, they were bad. 
They were real bad. In fact, just a couple, how we talk to each other the rest of the trip home. The other one was how we talked to our kids and reacted to our kids on the way home. How we talked to the people in the convenience store every time we stopped to use the restroom on the way home. Those are just a few of the things, but our attitude has changed. Lots of things are changed. None of it honored God on the rest of that trip. In David's case, the journey from determined to disheartened, it happens about the time it took to read one verse in the Bible. So that's what happened. We see him at the end of 26. He's made a great decision again. He's given God the glory. And now we see God, or we see David, completely disheartened in, in the very first verse of chapter 27. He's disheartened with all his circumstances. And he's in a disheartened state. It's when we see David make the bad decision to move into Philistine territory. I mean, he literally ran into the arms of the enemy to get away from Saul. Not only did he move himself, but he also took 3,000 people with him and all their livestock. And they traveled west to a city called Gath, and that's where he encountered King Achish, the king of Gath. Now, it's not the first time he's been with King Achish. Last time he fled, this was back in chapter 21, he fled to Gath after he'd made a questionable decision. And that's when he deceived a priest and ended up getting all those priests, all but one killed by Saul after that. Um, But this time we see David running again away, away in fear. And we see him going to Gath and he's weary and he's disheartened. So he runs to the arm of his enemies and at surface level, it looks like his plan might've been successful or at least a little bit because it says in verse four that Saul never again sought to kill Saul or to kill David. It it kept him alive that way, at least. Um, I believe it speaks a lot about Saul's character though when I read that. Uh, Saul was pretty much only willing to do this when he was the top dog and pursuing him was easy. And running into the, to the enemies, he would have to pursue David while all the while being hunted by his enemies and watching out for himself. He was kind of like the bully on the playground is what I imagined him at this point. So I guess in light of that, David's decision was a little okay. You know, but what David was more concerned about his safety and his comfort, I think God was more concerned about using David's circumstances to make him into a man of God and prepare him to be the king of Israel. I think they were on different pages at this point. So running away in fear may actually have kept David from learning some really important lessons. I don't know. We don't know. We'll never know because now David's living with the enemy and he's set up camp there. Let's continue. I'm going to start at verse 5 and read to the end of this chapter. Then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Gesherites, Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land of old as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. 
When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, oh, against Judah or against the Jeremelites or, or the Kenites. And David would neither leave man or woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about what he, us, and say, so David is done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people in Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. You know, I want to give you a little background first about the cities, about the city of Gath, about the city of Ziklag, and then I'm going to do a really brief synopsis of what David was up to here. That it's going to help you understand what he was thinking. There were five principal cities in the pal- of the Philistines. Each one had its own king, and Gath was one of those cities. It was known as a royal city, which would mean it was a main seat of power, and Achish, the king of Gath, would have, off, would have obviously known about David. He was a mighty warrior in Israel. He'd been there once acting like a madman. So I'm sure he knew exactly who this guy was. In fact, his servants referred to David as a king of Judah or king of the land of Judah. And so because of this, David probably knew they were going to be keeping a close eye on him. It would be hard for him to fly under the radar anywhere in Gath. So he goes to, um, he goes to um, King Achish, the king of Gath, and he asks for, this, for a city or a town, and he gives him Ziklag. Now, it's hard to say if this was God's plan. Was it David's plan? I don't really know. But I want you to look. Now, Ziklag is a city. I have a map for you. It's in the Negev, and, but its exact location today is kind of unknown. They've got a couple possible locations. The most plausible one, they say, is the one kind of to the right of you of there, down from Gath, and most believe, um, most believe it's that second one over to the right. So way back when Joshua was handing out land, when they first got to the promised land, this was, Ziklag was given to Simeon, which is the tribe of Judah, which is where David is from. And, but when they took over that city, they never fully conquered it, and they never fully occupied it. So it was kind of a mix of people. This is why that this is probably why Achish felt like he was able to to give this city to David. He was semi still in control of this city. But so what he did was uh, so because of this Israelites living in that area always had some conflict. They always were in conflict with the surrounding Philistine strongholds as well as within the city of Ziklag. So David made this plan. Now I'm not sure there's been a lot of discussion. Was it God's plan? Was this David's plan? They don't give us a lot of information here. Hard to know. But we get a hint that whether it was God's initial plan or not, God brought some good out of it because it says there in verse 6, I believe, that from the day that David took over Ziklag, it stayed with Israel from then on. So apparently what he put to um, practice worked there. And what was it he did? Well, again... He's very questionable, his decisions, because they involve a lot of deceit, which is his go-to for David. And um, because of it, because of the deceit, there's a lot of loss of life, a lot of human life lost here. But here's what he did. He conducts raids against the Philistine strongholds. And you can see these on here. There's the uh, Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Malachites. Okay, so these would have been kind of their, their neighbors and were always kind of a problem. Always kind of a conflict going on there. But, and so, so we, we're having military success in these areas for sure was going to endear David to, this, to Judah. 
and to all the Israelites because they don't have to worry about those guys anymore. But it would have cost him his life, most likely, if Achish knew what he was doing with these raids. So instead of telling Achish that he was raiding the Philistine strongholds, he instead says he's raiding Judah, which is over to the right of Ziklag there. And, uh, and then he says the Jerimelites, which are down there, you see them. Now, Jerimelites were actually descendants of Judah. And then he says the Kenites. And the Kenites, they were descendants of Cain, but they were on very good terms with Judah. In fact, during the time that David reigns, the Kenites will become part of the tribe of Judah. They become um, connected to them. But because of this deception, David felt the need to have every man and woman killed and every child killed so that nobody with a mouth that could talk would get back to King Achish and report what he had been doing. So instead of live human captives... David took the spoils of the war back, and he's like, look what I did for you. And he gets into good graces of Achish. Again, was it God's plan? Was it David's plan? We don't know. It's not recorded. We're not sure. I do know this. David's uh, deceited accomplished what he desired, for sure. But I'm not sure it's what God desired for David. I don't, I don't know that for sure. But it seems like he hit his goal because it records that Achish trusts him and wrongly assumes that he's become a stench to his people. He's like, I've got a friend in David. He's going to serve me forever. Now, there are a couple of different camps on whether David was making a good or bad strategic move when he ran off to live with the enemies and move into Gath. The most popular camp, though, agrees that David was making a bad decision. Now, at first, I'm not going to lie, I didn't like this criticism. I liked David a lot. And I wanted to rationalize everything he did that seemed a little bit off. Oh, he was tired. Oh, David, he's just, he's just made this one little step. But it wasn't that bad. But after a bit of studying and pondering and praying on this, I agree. I think he made a bad decision. And here's why I say that. I came to this decision. You know, I started thinking about David's character. And we've had a lot of chances to see his character over these last um, 20 or say 12 chapters, I guess. You know, and he's made a lot of really good decisions. He's had a lot of success. We've seen him win over and over. And this going to Gath out of fear was kind of out of norm for him. It, wasn't out of, it was out of character. It wasn't his norm. In fact, one of the only times we see him going rogue like this is recorded back in chapter 21. And guess what? That involved deceit as well. He was running away in fear. But you know, even knowing this, I was still trying to rationalize his actions in 27. And I want to share a couple things that I started to notice as I was studying this, that in the chapters to this point, recording, record David, starting, say, with chapter 16, going to where we are today, 27, those 12 chapters, the two shortest chapters in all of those chapters are chapter 21 and chapter 27. There's only 15 verses in 21 and only 12 in, verse, in chapter 27. I also noted in those two chapters, there's something missing, and that's acknowledgement of God. Not once is God's name said in either of those chapters. 
So I took those two things and I put them together and it led me to believe that David seems to make questionable decisions that often for him involve deceit when he's not walking closely with God. Speculation on my part, but I've lived it out a few times in my life, so I think I've experienced it. And although chapter 27 ends with David living well under the wing of the enemy, in the next few chapters, we're going to learn that we're going to see David has made this poor decision to escape there. He's going to have to make some unthinkable decisions. He's going to be faced with an unthinkable problem where he's going to be faced with battling against his own people, the Israelites. Now, as I said all along, this isn't the end of David's story. It's just a small piece of it. And before we all get all judgy and start saying, oh my goodness, how could David, a God after man's own heart, make such poor decisions? I think I just need to turn that mirror around and ask myself that same question. Because I'll tell you what, I can rationalize my poor decisions with the best of them. In fact, if that was spiritual gift, it would be my top one. I can make you believe that what I did was the best thing I could have done and should have done, and God was in every piece of it. I don't know about you, though, but during times of prolonged distress, where I begin to think there's no hope, no hope at all, and I'm losing my confidence, I'm starting to doubt, because God hasn't answered my prayers in my way and in my time, I often find myself moving from determined to disheartened. And when this happens, my walk with God is so affected. And sometimes, I'll be honest, I can't even form the words to say a prayer about it because it's so hard. And I can tell you for certain that it's during those times, like David, I start to make really questionable decisions. And all of them will be based on my fear and my hopelessness and not on the character of God. Walking closely with God allows us to see his character and it helps us avoid making decisions based on our fears and our hopelessness. But looking back on those times and reflecting on those difficult circumstances when I wasn't walking closely with God, I'm reminded that God never walked away from me. No, he didn't. He just kept on doing his best work. It's stunning to me that he would do that. When I think about it, it saddens me. It saddens me because guess what? Like David, I might have missed out on some really important lessons. I'm probably gonna have to redo that field trip again just so I can maybe learn them. I probably missed out on a lot of blessings too because I wasn't walking with him. Instead, like David, I go rogue and I make these bad decisions and God in his mercy has been faithful to continue to do his good work, not because of my faithfulness, but because of his great faithfulness. Look at 1 John 1 on your verse sheet. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't know about all of you, but I am more than grateful that I serve a God that is faithful to forgive even when I've been unfaithful to him. Please pray with me. Father, you are so faithful to us. Father, we so often walk away from you and think we can take care of this on our own. We can manipulate, we can deceive, we can do what we think to get it done in our time and in our way. And Father, you are so gracious and merciful 
to walk by us and continue to do your good work. Father, I pray that all of us be women that lean in hard to you during our circumstances, good or bad, that we would acknowledge you in all that we see and do, and that we would be a light to those around us because of it. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.